Welcome to Trailhead. Um, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, before we jump in um, on the, uh, uh, the Honduras trip and, and the Compassion Experience, um, so Thursday through Monday, they've got the Compassion Experience down in O'Fallon, just south of us. You'd have to sign up to, to go down and visit. Um, so Trailhead has partnered with about 100 kids in Tegucigalpa, um, the capital of Honduras, in a very specific neighborhood. Um, and we are planning to do a mission trip down there in the spring. Uh, we're going to go visit the kids. We're going to hang out with them. Um, we're also going to be doing medical mission stuff down there. Uh, and I'm inviting you to consider coming along with us. Uh, we really do want this to be. If you've, if you've never had um, an out-of-country mission experience, this is, this is a great place to start. Um, if you've been sponsoring a kid, man, what an incredible opportunity to actually meet that child. Um, and um, I t- I, it'll, it'll, it'll change your heart, I'm telling you. It'll change your heart and, uh, and have a significant impact on them. So consider it. Uh, if, if you want to take a, a baby step in that direction, consider going down and, uh, and joining in the Honduras experience. They've, they've got this huge semi, and you put on these earphones, and, and you basically walk through, and it, it, uh, it gives you the experience. It's, it's specifically about the area we're going to down in Honduras, and um, uh, you'll, you'll get to hear someone's story, somebody who's actually gone through and has been a compassionate child. Um, as they narrate what their life was like in that environment and how compassion um, impacted them. Uh, I'm telling you, engage. Okay, I know we're busy. Uh, I know we're going a million miles an hour. I know we all got a million things to do. Um, but there are a few things that we have the opportunity to jump into that will have a significant and lasting impact on our hearts, um, that will light us up in ways that we need to be lit up and, and, and soften us in ways we need to be softened. And so um, you have this opportunity, okay? So if you're interested in joining in, uh, there's more information at Connection Point. There's more information uh, on uh, hanging around. There's one on the door back there. Um, and, uh, and, and so let us know. Um, there will be different groups going down um, at different times, okay? All right. Uh, I also want to let you know that uh, today, this weekend, is pizza with the pastor or pie with the pastor, we're calling it now, because last night at the Saturday night service, we literally had pie. It was kind of awesome. Um, today we're doing pizza pie. Get it? Get it? It works both ways. And so, um, so if you want to have some pizza, join us after the second service. Okay, we're going to be doing it. And, and the whole point behind it is, is um, if you're a guest, if you're a newcomer, if you're, I'm going to give a little bit of information about the history of the church, but it's really just a way for you to ask some questions, to have some dialogue, meet some people, move into community. Uh, if you're a regular, you're welcome too. If you're hungry, um, we'll give you some pizza, and, and you're welcome to ask your questions as well. Last night, they weren't all softballs. I got beamed with a few hardballs. That was fun. Um, so show up with your questions, and we will field them. And, um, and, and our whole goal is, is uh, to just make sure you have the information you need and that you're connecting in community, okay? Uh, and then the next two weeks, so this is pizza with the pastor, pie with the pastor. Uh, the next two weeks after this, we actually have a connect group meeting uh, on Sunday afternoons, um, and, and that is, again, designed to help people who are wanting to know more about our, our church to get it, um, to be able to move into community, ask their questions, find out the information they need. It really is uh, the next step. Um, if, you're, if you're just, man, I've been here, and I'm wondering if, if this is the place for me, okay? All right, so let's grab our Bibles. We're going over to the book of Jonah this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. Uh, in our Bibles, we're going over to page 774, and we're uh, making our way into Jonah chapter 2 this morning. We left Jonah in a pretty tight spot. 
uh, over the last three weeks, right? God showed up to Jonah at the beginning of the book, said, Arise, go to Nineveh, tell them that, uh, that I've noticed their evil doings, and warn them. And Jonah arose and went the opposite direction, right? Uh, instead of going 500 miles northeast to Nineveh, he's heading 500 miles west to Tarshish uh, across the sea. He is going to put himself as far as humanly possible away from this call of God. Um, but God, uh, you know, I'm sure there was a little, little wry smile on his face as Jonah made his plans and worked his plans, uh, waited until he got out on the sea, hurled a great wind after him, the ship started to break up, the sailors panicked, they figured out it was Jonah's fault, they, they tried to save him, they couldn't, they hurled him off the ship into the sea, the sea calmed down, but not for Jonah. Um, Jonah uh, went from drowning to being uh, swallowed by a, uh, a giant fish, a megalodon. Uh, and so when we left Jonah, he was in a pretty tight spot, right? He's, he's inside the, the, the acidic belly of a giant fish, um, enjoying a pretty nasty environment. Um, and, uh, and so when we get to chapter 2, we expect the narrative to continue, right? We get to chapter 2, we expect to hear what it's like inside the belly of the fish. We expect to hear, you know, how he's railing and, and, and panicking. And, and what we find in chapter 2 is not that. We get into chapter 2, and what we find is actually a psalm of praise. Uh, the entire chapter is poetry. It, it was clearly written long after the events took place, after Jonah had time to, to think about what had happened, to allow those things to settle in his mind, to reflect on those things. Uh, it is interesting. He goes from being swallowed, swallowed by, the, 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 by a fish. At the end of the chapter, we're going to see that he gets vomited up by the fish, right? So in between the swallowing and the vomiting, we have this incredibly beautiful psalm of praise, um, which seems really weird right? Like, like, this is the worst part of the story for Jonah in a lot of ways, right? This is, this is the part where he's, he's in the belly of the fish. Uh, and yet w- what we find is, is actually uh, a very well-written, very well-structured Hebrew psalm. Now, uh, Hebrew psalms have, have very clear structures. Like, this is not just random, right? Uh, uh, it has the structure of a psalm. It begins in verse 1 where you're going to see it has a summary of the answered prayer. Verses 2 through 6 talk about the crisis that he entered. 6 through 7 talk about the deliverance that God gave him. And then verses 8 and 9 talk about his vow of praise. It's a very, very typical structure for a psalm of praise. Um, and there have been a lot of people who have asked, why is it here? Why, why isn't it at the end of the book? Because clearly, Jonah, you're going to find out, I know I'm spoiling the story a little bit, Jonah hasn't completely learned his lesson yet, right? After he gets vomited up, he, he still obeys God, but he does it very reluctantly, and he does it um, uh, really dragging his feet and, and with a lot of resentment. Um, he's, he's not there yet. Um, this psalm uh, uh, is, is kind of a, an interesting uh, spot. So here's, here's my theory. This is why. Something began in the belly of the fish in Jonah, something beautiful, even though it was not a beautiful place. Something beautiful began in Jonah that that took a long time to come to maturity. It took a long time to find its development, but this is where it started. And so what Jonah is saying is don't just pay attention to the narrative. Don't just get distracted by, by the events, the horrible events. I want you to pay attention not just to what's happening to me. I want you to pay attention to what God is doing because that's the beautiful part of the story, right? So Jonah's pointing us beyond the events of the story to the outcome of the story. He's pointing us beyond the, 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 the trauma of, of this situation to the blessing 
that ultimately comes out of it. And that's what's valuable to us in this. Jonah's giving us a commentary um, where we're not just reading the story, we're understanding God, what God's at work doing in the story, which helps us, right? It helps us as we're thinking about our stories, and we're thinking about our struggles, and we're, and we're thinking about our, our sufferings, right? Because here's the thing, often what we see as meaningless pain is, in fact, God at work in our lives. Often what we encounter as meaningless pain is, is actually God at work disciplining us, which that's a fun word. We're going to talk about that. All right, let's take a look at Jonah chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read it out loud. Uh, follow along in the text. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought, me up, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, today we get to talk about the fun topic of, of discipline. What's happening in Jonah's life is discipline. And, and it is incredibly um, instructive to us as we think about how God works in, in our lives. Discipline is one of those topics that we, we don't really like to talk about. It is generally unpleasant. Um, I've, I've had to do a lot of disciplining in my life. Um, I'm a parent of three, um, and parents know, man, you, you have to learn how to discipline. Um, I was uh, a teacher, um, and so classroom control, man, you if you're going to do anything in a classroom, you have to learn to discipline. And I learned that early on. In fact, um, uh, at my first school, I was made the dean of discipline. Um, so I, I not only had to discipline my class, but I ran the discipline um, program for, for the entire high school and middle school. Um, later, I became a vice principal, and guess what? I still had to take care of the discipline. And, uh, and of course, later when I became a principal, that also was on my job description. Um, when I finally got sick of all the discipline, I, uh, I left education and went to work for The Journey, a mega church over in St. Louis, and, and I was their family pastor teaching parents how to discipline. Um, you, you just can't get away from this, right? It, it is an incredibly important and incredibly difficult topic. I was wa- working with one father um, who was um, he had a, a particularly angsty son in the middle school years. That can happen. Um, some of you were that kid. Uh, some of you have had that kid. Um, but, but this kid, man, he just was at odds with his father continually. So, so, and, and they sparked. They sparked. It was that kind of situation. We all have at least one kid we spark with. Um, and, uh, and so these two sparked, which meant that they were just setting each other off 
all the time. You know, the father coming and is like, how can you disrespect me? And the son coming and, and who are you to tell me what to do? And, and they would just go at it. And so the father came and I, you know, I gave him some good coaching, you know, some, some basic stuff. I was like, how in the world? I'm like, okay, first, let me just, you know, the, let's start where we got to start, right? First, deal with your own anger. Never discipline out of anger, right? Discipline and punishment are two different things. If you're angry, you're going to try to punish, which is retributive. You're going you're to show up and you're going to be like, justice is coming down on your head, you little demon child, right? That's not, that is not constructive. That is, that is not helpful. Um, and it will not get you where you want to go. Discipline is not punishment, right? Um, and so you got to deal with your own anger first. Um, secondly, uh, you need to pick your battles because your kid right now, you got to remember he's, he's in a world of hormones and life change. And, and, um, if you pick every battle as a hill to die on, you're going to be dead a lot. Um, so don't do that, right? Pick your battles. Decide which issues are worth actually um, going to the mat for, right? And then set your plan before you arrive at the battle, right? So, so all you need to do to do that is, is determine. Uh, you need to give your, your son choices, right? Not just consequences, but choices. Empower him to make choices. Let him know that when you get into this situation, if you make this choice, this is the consequence. And if you make this choice, this is the consequence. Like, let them know in advance. So that when you actually get into the situation, you're not at that point trying to wrestle their will. You're simply trying to enforce the consequences that that you've already laid out for them. And that'll keep you from getting into that mad dance of of, of the willpower struggle, right? And so they decided one of the areas they were going to go to battle with the, the, the son uh, was, was at church. Um, they were in a church where you stand, you sit, and you stand, you sit, and, and uh, the kid just wouldn't stand. And, um, uh, you know, this, this, uh, the mom really took that to heart. Um, people were looking at him. They felt like people, it was like, you know, our child is disrespecting God. And, and, and so this, you know, they decided this is one of the areas that, so they, they talked to their son in advance. When, when everyone stands, you got to stand. When everyone sits, you got to sit. And, and, and if you don't, that's your choice, but here's the consequence, right? And the consequence had something to do with, I don't know, losing the internet or, or something along that line, right? It was something that was really valuable to the kid that he didn't want to lose, right? And so they go to church and, and, um, and they're stand, you know, comes time to stand and the dad's, you know, just, you know, not saying a word, doesn't have to anymore, just, you know kid's sitting there, sitting there, and then she stands up. And dad's like, yes, I won. It worked. And the kid looks at his dad, and he's like, I might be standing on the outside, but I'm sitting on the inside. <laughs> All right, so what's the point of that? The point is this. Um, discipline is incredibly difficult because the goal of discipline is never behavior management. The goal of discipline is heart change right? Isn't that true? I mean, those of you who are parents, don't you know this to be true? You don't want to just manage the behavior of your child. You want, to, you want to help mold and shape their heart. Because if you're just managing their behavior, when, when they're outside of your presence, who's going to be managing their behavior, right? They, they're just going to mold themselves to a whole new set of, of, of external pressures and, and ultimately, they're, they're not going to walk in the fullness of life. They're not going to get the fullness of blessing. We want to shape their desires, not just manage the fruit of those desires, right? We want them to crave what is good, not just do what is good because there are consequences in place if they, if they don't. And, and that's the real challenge of discipline. Discipline is never just about the behavior. It's about shaping the heart. Listen, that's why God disciplines us. 
God is continually in the process of disciplining us. Not because He's punishing us. Remember, discipline isn't punishment. Discipline is training. Discipline is instruction, right? Discipline is, is admonition. Discipline, discipline is, is hard and difficult, but it is necessary for growth, right? We, we are called, followers of Christ, we are called disciples. The, the word disciple comes from the same root as discipline. It means one who is instructed, right? When God disciplines us, He is instructing us. Now, here's the challenge with discipline, though. Discipline is unique. Discipline is uh, the strategic use of discomfort to help someone see what they don't want to see and to, um, and to grow in ways they don't want to grow. Discipline is the strategic use of discomfort to help someone see what they don't want to see or to grow in ways they don't want to grow, right? And, and so that makes it kind of hard, right? It is, it, is, it is hard for someone who's being disciplined um, believe it or not, if you've never been a parent, if you've never been in a classroom setting, if you've never worked with children, you need to repent and actually start working with kids. But, but, um, but, but if you haven't, you need to know that discipline is just as unpleasant for the person who has to bring it. Discipline's hard to receive. Discipline's hard to give. No, ain't nobody happy in that process, right? Um, but it is necessary, right? Because if we don't, if we, if we don't discipline our kids, what's going to happen? If we don't use strategic forms of discomfort to help them see what they don't want to see and grow in ways they don't want to grow, they're, they're, they're going to develop uh, no impulse control. They're going to have no ability to delay gratification. They are going to have no sense of empathy. They're not going to be able to see anybody's life besides their own. They're going to harm themselves and harm others, right? Let me give you a couple verses. This is uh, Proverbs 13, 24 and Proverbs 12, 1. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but whoever loves him is diligent and to discipline him. Um, let's pause on that one first. To spare the rod, the strategic application of discomfort, okay? Not going to get into the debate about corporal punishment. I'm not going to do it. Um, I think there are times corporal punishment um, can be uh, effective, and I think there are other times it's completely ineffective, okay? I think it's situational. I think you need to know your child, um, but the point here is, is not the means or the mode, it's, it's, it's the purpose. A, a parent who is unwilling to bring strategic discomfort into the life of their child is acting as if they hate their child. Generally, a parent who refuses to bring discomfort into the life of their child is either, one, so completely consumed with themselves and dysfunctional that they, they don't have the margin to pay attention to their kid, um, or two, they're so afraid uh, maybe they've been abused in the past or they've been hurt in ways. They're so afraid of, of what the emotional consequences are that they can't bear the discomfort themselves, right? It, it hurts them too much to bring strategic discomfort into the life of their child, so they avoid it. And, and what this tells us is, is we just need to know if we're not willing to bring that strategic discomfort into the life of our children, we're acting like we hate them because we're actually setting them up to be hurt. We're setting them up to get the lessons we could be giving them now. They'll get those lessons later, and it's going to hurt a whole lot more, and the destruction is going to be a whole lot worse, right? So discipline is absolutely necessary. Uh, one who loves him is diligent to discipline him, right? The second proverb is Proverbs 12. One, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Oh, man, that's harsh. Yeah, uh, the Lord sometimes just calls it like he sees it, right? Um, 
It's stupid not to want to be disciplined. <laughs> that doesn't mean everybody likes to be disciplined. I don't like it. But, but there is a wisdom that can come through discipline that we can't get in other ways. And, and it's not that we love the discipline, it's we love the wisdom. And if the discipline is the necessary path to gain the wisdom, we're willing to endure it. In fact, we're willing to embrace it. And we recognize that it is, in fact, actually love toward us. You ever had a great coach who pushed you in ways that made you incredibly uncomfortable? Actually hurt you? Like they said things to you that hurt your ego? They, they made you do things that hurt your body? But, but after a while, you actually grew and improved? Were you not grateful for the discipline of, of a loving coach or a loving instructor? Right? It, 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 is, it is an expression of love. Right? Um, so, so it is love to give it, it is wise to receive it, right? Um, let's apply this to God. God is a good Father, right? He is our heavenly Father. He is the perfect Father. And as a good Father who acts in love, He will bring discomfort into our lives to free us and to bless us. In fact, God will use every discomfort in your life as a means of discipline. And you're like, holy cow, that means I'm being disciplined all the time. Yep, you are. Well, that, that just, okay, discipline's not punishment. This isn't God's disapproval. This isn't God's anger. This isn't God lashing out at you because you're such a loser and you're so, this is God's love. God is disciplining you continually because He continually wants your best. God is working through all of your discomforts. Right? I want you to catch this, right? Jonah is swallowed by the belly of the fish. That's pretty uncomfortable. Not quite sure I've ever experienced that level of discomfort, right? It's slimy, it's acidic, it is, it is methane-y, it is, it's bad, right? So I don't know what it is to spend three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, but I know what it's like to be stuck in a traffic jam that feels like three days and three nights. That's discomfort. I know what it's like to have somebody misrepresent me and misinterpret my motives. I know what it's like to have relational tension with somebody because there's something we have to talk about, but they refuse to talk to me about it. I know what it's like to have a physical discomfort where my body is not doing what it's supposed to be doing or it's acting in ways it's not supposed to act. I know what it's like to be sick. I know what it's like to feel discouraged. I know what it's like to be so tired that I suddenly feel overwhelming these waves of shame. I don't know if you've ever been there, but when I get fatigued, I'm incredibly vulnerable to those feelings of exposure and of shame, of just, man, I'm such a loser, I'm such a, you know, I know what those are like. Listen to me, God is at work in your discomfort to discipline you, to train you, to instruct you for your good. Now, not all of your pain is good, right? We talked about that last week. God will use what He hates to accomplish what He loves. There are times that the pain that comes into our life is evil. There are times that the pain that comes into our life is the result of evil people doing evil things or, or the manifestation of, of um, ultimately our cosmic sin working its way out through the created order in such a way that, that tsunamis or earthquakes, or like, um, there's random things that happen that produce suffering. Listen, God doesn't love everything that happens to you, but He loves you and everything that happens to you. And He will use all of your discomfort 
to train you and to free you and to bless you. Because God loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you where you are. He loves you exactly as you are. He's not waiting for you to improve yourself so that he'll love you more. You can't make God love you more and you can't make God love you less. He loves you exactly where you are. He delights in you, but he loves you so much he's not going to leave you where you are. He is going to change you. He is going to free you because he loves you. Take a look at this, Hebrews 12, 10 and 11. Hebrews 12, 10 and 11 says this, um, God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All right, you ever get in that that rut where you're just asking God why? Why this? Why now? Why did this have to happen? Why, why, why? Yeah, you have. We've all been there. Well, this gives us the answer to the why. Right here. And it's the only answer we're ever going to get, by the way. God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. Why is God at work in our, discipline, in our, in our suffering? Why is it God at work in, in our pain? Why, why does God allow bad things to happen? It's a complex question. There's a lot going on. But one of the answers is this right here. God is at work in your suffering to introduce you into a greater experience of His holiness. Now, if holiness doesn't sound attractive to you, um, you don't understand holiness. For some of you, you know, you, maybe you were raised in the high church and holiness is associated with the smells and the bells of, of liturgical church and it just seems really formal and stiff and stuffy, right? It, it, just, it just feels like stale obedience and starched performance. Right? It feels musty and stiff. For some of you, holiness is associated with um, abusive church leaders who are just railing on your weaknesses, condemning you, telling you you're worthless, that you never measure up. Listen, holiness, holiness. Holiness is the very exuberance of life. Holiness, God's holiness is the cumulative perfection of His attributes. Let me say that again. God's holiness is his cumulative perfection of his attributes. What are God's attributes? His beauty, his creativity, his power, his wisdom, his love, his grace. It's all the things we want. It is, it is the cumulative perfection of God's attributes. Holiness is the brightness, the beauty, the expression of God as He truly is. And it's our invitation to life as it was truly meant to be. God wants to free you into His holiness because that's what He's changing you into. That, another way of putting that is, is Jesus is, He's forming Jesus in you, right? He's, he's shaping you into, this, into the image of His Son. Believer in Christ, you've been covered in Christ and you're being changed to resemble Christ, right? You have been forgiven by Christ and now you're being made a brother and a sister of Christ. You're actually being, being transformed into the image of Christ. You're being molded into the very holiness of God. 
This is what makes life truly life, beauty, joy, dignity, power, love, and he wants us to share it. But to get us there, he's got to change us. And I don't know if you've realized this yet, but you don't want to be changed, right? To get us there, God has to retrain your appetites, and there are things you're hungry for you don't want to stop being hungry for. Let's just be honest, right? And so God, like a good surgeon, comes in and strategically uses discomfort in our lives to help us see what we don't want to see and grow in ways we don't want to grow. Right? God's not a butcher. He doesn't just show up and start randomly bringing pain into our lives. God is a surgeon. God uses the suffering in our lives strategically to accomplish what He loves. He is strategic. He is careful. He is intentional. And He is purposeful. All right, so Jonah's psalm. That was the introduction. <laughs> Jonah's psalm uh, is a celebration of God's discipline in his life. And there are three things I think we can learn from this psalm. Um, that I'm just going to hit fairly quickly here, but there are three things that I think are profound that we can learn from this psalm um, that can help us process how God's at work in the suffering in our lives, okay? Um, the first is this, and it's found in the first two verses, that, that God is awakening us to the reality of our helplessness, okay? So in, in Psalm, uh, in, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. All right, I don't know if you've noticed, but that's actually the first time Jonah has prayed in the entire story. God showed up and said, arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah arose and went the opposite direction. He didn't pray. He didn't consult God. He didn't ask why or what or how. He didn't, he didn't wrestle with God. He didn't talk to God. He ran. He got on the boat. He went down into the belly of the boat, and he went to sleep because he was confident in his plan. He was confident in his path. He was confident in his wisdom. He was confident in his strength. And then God raised up a storm, and the sailors were woken up to the helplessness of their situation. They're all panicking, calling out to their gods, and Jonah's not. They're like, Jonah, get up and cry out to your God. Guess what Jonah does? He gets up, and he doesn't pray. He just gets up, and he's like, what's the fuss? Right? They cast lots. They figure out it's Jonah's fault. And Jonah's like, yeah, I guess it was me. You'll have to throw me overboard. So they do. <laughs> All right. We are incredibly headstrong people in the wrong ways. We hate dependence. We hate being helpless. We love to pretend that we're smart enough and strong enough and witty enough and, and, and maybe tricky enough. Those of you who, who are like the sneaky types, you know, you think you can just sneak your way out of any situation with a, with a little smile or a whatever. You're not. You're not, right? Because what ends up happening is Jonah now is floundering in the ocean. He's not smart enough. He's not witty enough. He's not strong enough. He is confronted with his helplessness. Have you ever been there in that moment where you're confronted with a life situation and you are so overwhelmed that you are suddenly aware of how helpless you actually are? This is above my pay grade. And in that moment, you suddenly realize, you know, I think it always has been. Just not sure I noticed I, it was only an illusion of control. I thought I, thought I, had, I thought I had everything under control. 
I thought I had my, all my T's crossed, my I's dotted. Man, I thought I, had, I thought I was strong enough. I thought I was funny enough. I thought I was... I, in that sudden realization, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the suffering... Listen, there's, there's nothing like pain. There's nothing like pain that wakes us up to the fact that, that we're not God. There's nothing like suffering to wake us up to the fact that, that it's just an illusion. That if I'm just smart enough, if I'm just good enough, if I'm just self-controlled enough, if, I'm, if, I'm just, if I just do this, if I just do that, there's nothing like pain to awake us to the reality that we're not God. Uh, listen, this is the heart of the human problem, right? Um, and Christians, we're just as guilty of this. We've become followers of Christ and we want to be saved by grace, and then we want to be able to live a life where we no longer need it, right? It's like, I'm saved by grace. Now I'm getting down to the hard work of living like I don't actually still need the grace, right? Thanks for a ticket to heaven. Now I just need a little bit of help. I'll build my own security. I'll establish my own glory. I will mark my own path. I will, right? We talked about this in the book of James. This impulse is what the Bible calls worldliness. Now, worldliness in, in Christian circles, man, we just have abused this word when most Christians hear worldliness, they think of evil things out there, right? The evil in the culture, the evil in society, the evil in Hollywood, the evil on the east side with the strip clubs, the evil, the evil out there, right? But the reality is worldliness is the evil in here that produces the things out there. Worldliness is my impulse to try to do life without God. Worldliness is how I try to get the blessings of God apart from the presence of God. Worldliness is my desire to get the fullness of life apart from the God who gives that fullness. I don't want the grace of God. I want God to bless my plans and just help me. I don't want to be utterly dependent. I don't want to be helpless. I don't like to be helpless and utterly dependent. I, I want God to bless my strength, my plans, my ability, my glory, and that's worldliness. I want to be, in some ways, like God instead of utterly dependent on God. God wants to break us of our worldliness. All right, let me just pause and cast a vision for you. What would life be like if you were completely comfortable being completely dependent on God. Like, like so dependent, you literally never worried. You didn't worry about what tomorrow would bring. You didn't worry about where your food was going to come from. You didn't worry about what your salary was. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't worry, you know, where, where you were so at rest in the glory of God, you weren't worried about what people thought of you. Or, 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 or how big your reputation was, or whether or not you were significant or famous, that you were so dependent on God's love, you didn't worry about whether people liked you, or whether they approved of you. What would it be like if you were so completely dependent on God that all of your deepest needs were met in Him, and you were able to just go forth in the joy and the boldness of your faith, knowing that God's got it. He's already ahead of you. I don't need to worry. I don't need to panic. I don't need to be in control. I don't need to be that important. I don't need to be, I don't need to be, I can just rest. What 
would that be like? Yeah, I don't know either. I don't. But I'd like to. I mean, for real. That's what we were created for, you guys. We were created to be absolutely, completely dependent on God. God, the giver of good gifts, continually pours out His goodness into our lives, and we walk in utter and humble dependence on the goodness of those gifts. We no longer look to the gifts of God to be God for us. We enjoy the gifts of God from the hand of a good God, but it's a, our trust is in God, not the gifts. We're bold when we need to be bold. We're quiet when we need to be quiet. We are at peace when we're supposed to be at rest. God uses suffering in our lives to awaken us to a reality that most of us are desperately trying to run from. We're helpless. Jonah's helpless, and he's suddenly reminded that God is not. Jonah's helpless in the storm, but God is over the storm. So that restores our trust in God's control, right? That's the second thing. Um, second thing we see here is, is in verse 3. Um, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. I want you to notice the personal pronouns. You're like, personal pronouns, I don't know what those are. This is not English class. Um, who's doing the action here? Who's doing the action? For you cast me into the deep. Who cast him into the deep? You read the story. Who cast him into the deep? It was the sailors, right? But, but Jonah now is looking at the events and recognizing that there was a hand over the hand, that there was a will over the will, that these people did this, but God was at work in what they did. They cast me into the sea, but God, you cast me into the sea. Man, the wind didn't raise up these billows. You raised up these billows. You did this. You did this. Now, before you, you, you misread this, there's no accusation here. Jonah's not saying, you did this. He's saying, you did this. It's an expression of gratitude, not accusation. See, remember, this psalm was written much later, right? While Jonah was in the midst of the belly of the fish, I'm seriously doubting he had this perspective, right? I seriously doubt when he was in the middle of the suffering that he was like, yeah, bring it on, love it, thank you, you've done this to me, right? Let's be realistic both with Jonah and ourselves. It takes time to grow into this maturity. It takes time for us to grow into this perspective. Often when we're in the midst of the suffering, it's very, very difficult for us to be grateful for the suffering. But what this shows us is that there comes a point where we are. When we find our helplessness, when we recognize that God is in control, working in what we cannot control, there comes a point where we are grateful for the God who is telling a story that is greater than the story we would tell for ourselves when we actually get to a place where we can see what God is doing, we're experiencing the fruit of the righteousness that is being born in our lives, that we are becoming more holy, right? We're becoming more like Jesus. We're actually starting to taste the riches of the goodness of the presence of God. We're being set free from our worldliness and into the beauty of actually being dependent on God, the, the strength of our humility. That's when we look back and we can say, you did this. And they meant it for evil, but you meant it for good. You were at work in the midst of my pain to do things that were unimaginable and unimaginably good. 
See, it reorients the focus of our trust. Instead of trusting myself, it enables me to trust God. All right, one final thing is that it increases our joy. Our pain actually increases our joy in His grace. I'm going to just jump down to verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. What does that mean? I remembered that God existed. I think it's a lot more than that. When I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. When I was in that place of absolute weakness and I recognized your strength, it awakened me to see you as you actually are because I had forgotten how. It awakened me to be able to see you as, as, as maybe not safe, but incredibly and overwhelmingly good. A God who loves me. A God who's at work in ways I can't understand and I can't control. I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. See, God meets us in our pain in ways. He's meeting us like that all the time, but often we're just not ready for the meeting. It's often the pain that brings us to a place of humility that allows us to receive the love of God when in our personal strength and our own confidence and our own plans, we never would receive. We wouldn't allow God to love us like that. And that increases our joy. We meet God in our suffering and we recognize that God is not some distant God hurling suffering at us from a distance. He is a God meeting us in our pain because He's a God who's intimately acquainted with pain and He knows how to walk with us in it. And in that place, we recognize that our pain is actually sacred. That there is a temple in that place where we get to meet the intimacy of God. Because He is not walking outside of our story, alienated from our pain. He is walking with us in our story. And He is personally acquainted with our pain. And He meets us in that place like no one else can. And we recognize That we may not like everything he's allowing to happen, but we love the hand that's allowing it. Verse 7 says, when my life, or verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. We're going to come back to that verse at the end of the series. But let me just say this. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. We pay regard to vain idols. Right? They're vain because they can't produce what they promise to produce. We look to things that aren't God to do for us what only God can do. We ask things that aren't God to be for us what, what only God can be. Right? We, in area, I need to be significant. I need to be secure. I need to have joy, and I need to be loved. In those four critical areas, I look to things. I look to accomplishments. I look to what I can produce or what I can control. I look to my vain idol. And God is determined to stick his foot on the neck of your idol and kill it. Because as long as you are leaning into your idol, you are becoming numb to his love. He will kill what is determined to kill you. And the problem is that when God is at work killing our idols, it feels like he's killing us. Because we love our idols. 
God, in his steadfast love, will put to death what is bringing us into death. And that often means it will feel like we're dying in the midst of it, that we are being swallowed by the storm and we are not going to be delivered on the other side. But remind yourself in the midst of your suffering that you have a God who is over the storm, a God of steadfast love who is at work, awakening you to your humility, awakening you once again to his strength, and determined to expand your joy as you are molded into the image of his holiness. All right, I'm going to close this word of prayer. And um, we're going to share communion in a moment. First, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that um, you are so determined to bless us that you simply will not be put off. Even if we buy a ship and set a course in the opposite direction. There is no place we can flee that you're not already there. There's nothing we can do that make you not love us. (laughs) And in your steadfast, immovable covenant love, you pursue us, you chase us, you work with us even when we're squirming and fighting and resisting, and at times even hurling accusations at you, mistrusting your heart because we've lost the ability to see your love. Man, I thank you that you are so patient. You are so good. You are a good father. And in those moments, Lord, you never react in anger. You never get tired of us. You never grow to the point where you're like, I'm done with this kid. Man, you you hold us while we go through our temper tantrums. You keep us close while we're doing our best to get away so that our eyes can be opened and our hearts can once again receive love. Man, thank you. Thank you that you're faithful when we're faithless. Thank you that you, our security is dependent on on what you've done, not on what we do, and on your will to save us, not our will to impress you or run from you. Just thank you. And Spirit, will you awaken our hearts again this morning to the profound love with which we are loved. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.